Amen. Through the blurriness, try to picture with me a world without any kind of corrective lenses, right? Nope. A world without corrective lenses. And then comes a man. What's this man's name? His name is Gary Glasses. Gary Glasses, right? So like, like the Ferris wheel or a jacuzzi or a Petri dish, Gary loans his own name to his latest greatest invention, eyeglasses. Eyeglasses. So at first, Gary just goes door to door by himself. Knock, knock, knock. He's selling these corrective lenses one house at a time. But after a while, he has a whole group of glasses-wearing people, people who are seeing so much better than they did before. He's got a whole group of these people who want to be part of his business, who are true believers in both him and the product. So what do they do? They help manufacture the glasses. They help package them up. They make maps for Gary's sales calls. They handle the follow-up. But after some time, what happens? Gary announces that he's leaving to begin a new business in a faraway land. He's going to sell see-through beverage containers. Okay, Uh, moving on. So before Gary leaves, he gathers his executives and he gathers these uh, many of the other teary-eyed employees and he gives them a sincere and impassioned farewell speech. A speech that includes this challenge. Get a pair of glasses on every person in the country who needs them. That's the challenge. Get a pair of glasses on the faces of every person in the country who needs them. So in light of this alternate, alternative history, here's the question for you. If you worked for Gary Glasses, Inc., how would you personally take up this final challenge issued by your founder and CEO? What would you do? Keep that question in mind as we are turning to Matthew 28. If you're already there, Matthew 28, we're looking at verses 16 through 20, the last few verses of the chapter, the last verses of the entire book, the entire gospel, capital G, of Matthew. So having just finished that book last Monday in our Bible reading plan, let's look together at this closing section of the book beginning in verse 16. We read this. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, what a great ending, right? So even though this book has mainly taken place in two small regions of the world, Galilee and Judea, 
And though it has mainly focused on just a handful of individuals with Jesus Christ right there at the center, it ends today, sorry, it ends here in this passage, it ends with this big, broad, far-reaching, global perspective. And as a result of that ending, we're sitting here today on a faraway continent, reading these words in a totally different language and treating them as powerful, authoritative, and precious. Just think about that for a minute. Isn't that stunning? It's like that butterfly effect, right? Have you heard that? Remember that? It was kind of popular, I think, in the 90s of physicists who talked about a butterfly flapping its wings and the, the movement of the air created there could have an effect around it that would then lead to another effect to another effect that would, could affect even storm clouds or movements of, of air and jet flow, the jet stream or whatever, right? And the whole idea of the butterfly effect was this, was this appreciation of how very, very small things over time cumulatively affect very large things. A Jewish rabbi raised up from the dead, the Son of God, spoke these words on a mountain 2,000 years ago. And as a result, we're sitting here today. Just think about that. Be humbled by that. Give thanks to God this morning because of that. Now, if we run with the traditional title of this passage, most of you know it, right? It's probably right there in your Bible. The Great Commission. If we run with that, I think it's incredibly important that we answer just two basic questions to start out with. We could spend a lot of time on this. I mean, we could spend, we could do a whole day seminar on the Great Commission and this passage and all the tendrils, right, that it sends throughout the New Testament, how it affects so many things or how it's been fulfilled throughout history. But really, all we want to do is ask two basic questions to begin here. First, who is being commissioned, right? Who's being commissioned here? And once we answer that, number two, second, to what exactly are they being commissioned? Number one, who is being commissioned here? And number two, to what exactly are they being commissioned? Well, these aren't difficult questions to answer. These aren't difficult because the, the answers are right here. Who is being commissioned here? It's verse six. Look at verse 16. Jesus is speaking to the 11 disciples. He's speaking to the 11 disciples. These are the 12 men minus Judas who were appointed as apostles back in chapter 10 of this same book. These are the 12 men minus Judas who have been described throughout this book as being with Jesus as his disciples, as his students, as his followers, as his apprentices. Similarly, to what exactly are they being commissioned? That second question, again, it's clear in verse 19. They are being commissioned here to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. As they themselves had been made disciples of Jesus by Jesus, they are now being called to help other people in the name of Jesus become his disciples as well. This is, this is not complicated, is it? it? It's right 
It's right here in the text. But guess what? Guess what? If we start pressing on those easy answers, right? We start really pressing against those easy answers. Things become a little murkier. They become a little more difficult to see, to understand. For example, if Jesus commissioned just these 11 men for this work, how in the world, no pun intended, could all nations, even a sizable group of people from all nations, actually be reached by this small handful of guys? And wouldn't this disciple-making work have ended when these men died? Yeah, it would have been over. Now, if that's the case, how are we even sitting here today as disciples of Jesus? We have to have to answer that question. So again, we're pushing on this and some, some things are not really clear. They're actually becoming muddier. We, we might also ask, if the work to which these men were commissioned was to make disciples, what exactly does that entail? How exactly were they to make disciples? Was, was this a one-time event? Was it a one-time kind of transaction? Or was it something that was an ongoing process? So we're pushing against that second question and still it, 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 we're, we're just getting more questions. Those are the kinds of questions that force us to look for answers beyond this passage. And praise God that we have all of God's Word, right? That we have all of God's Word. I just finished a small book written in 170 A.D. by a dear brother named Irenaeus of Lyon. And that's, Lyon is in southern France, but, but, but in that time it was called Gaul, Roman Gaul. And guess what? Irenaeus, when he was young, he sat at the feet and learned from a man named Polycarp. And Polycarp, when he was young, he was mentored by a man named the Apostle John. Irenaeus was the great spiritual, he was the spiritual grandson of the Apostle John. And when he wrote in a small book called The Demonstration of the Apostolic Preaching, what he was talking about there that's so helpful for us to read all the way back, right? All the way back in 170 AD is that he would point in his work, as you read it, that Scripture interprets Scripture. That he talked routinely in this book about how the Old Testament Christ was at the center of it and how it was all pointing towards Christ. And it was fulfilled in Christ that the apostolic preaching, the preaching of these men, right, fulfilled the word of God. But I loved how he said, if a scripture is unclear, there are many other scriptures that help us make it more clear. So what I'm telling you, of course, is not new. (laughs) It goes all the way back in the history of the church. And that's what we want to think about here just for a moment. These are the kinds of questions that force us to look beyond this passage in Matthew 28. To other parts of Scripture. Specifically, let me give you some examples. I, I want to give you several other examples. You'll see them on the screen here. Several other examples of the same kind of commissioning of Jesus. Uh, maybe a, a versions of this same incident or related incidents. Passages like Luke 24, 46 through 47. Uh, at the end of that gospel, the end of the gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 21. And the very beginning of the book of Acts. 
Those are great passages that when you put those together with this passage in Matthew 28, you get a much fuller picture of the mission that Jesus was sending his disciples on. So we could also, though, beyond those passages, we also want to look at the continuation of the story. What happens after they're on this mountain with Jesus? What's the next thing that takes place? They've been commissioned. What did these guys do with the commission? How do they carry out the marching orders of Jesus? Well, that's why this is why it's so helpful that we have a book called The Acts of the Apostles. Perfect. <laughs> that's exactly what we want. The apostles, and we want to learn their acts, what they were doing. And we have letters from most of those, a lot of those same guys that we can study as well and say, okay, what are they teaching us there? So it's in these other parts of the New Testament that we find answers when we press a little harder on those initial two questions. Who was commissioned and to what were they commissioned? So what do Acts and the New Testament letters go on to reveal about this commission in Matthew 28? How do they help clarify the words of Jesus here? Well, we can't fully unpack that this morning. We'd be here for hours doing that. But let me suggest just a few simple ideas that might stir up the, the pot a little bit, get you guys thinking. For example, we learn, take a look, number one, we learn that these men did commission other men for the work of making disciples. As these guys were appointed, they also appointed. We see that throughout the book of Acts, right? We see in the book of Acts in the, and the New Testament letters, we read about other leaders who were raised up in addition to the apostles. These would include those raised up by God as prophets and evangelists. These would include those raised up by God and appointed by men as elders, also called pastors, also called overseers. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. We've talked about that before here at Way of Grace. And in terms of elders and pastors, elders slash pastors, we even have instructions given for raising up even more of those leaders. First Timothy three, Titus chapter one. So there's no there's no specifications like that for carrying on the work of the office of apostle. Apostles don't continue. If you go to a church and somebody calls themselves an apostle, probably better you just turn around and go back out of that church. That's not to say, that's not just a kind of cast a blanket aspersion on the entire church, but I would not be in a church where somebody was claiming to be an apostle because it just betrays a real ignorance of what Scripture teaches. Apostles were those who saw the risen Lord Jesus. They saw Him. There's no continuity with apostles. They're the foundation of the church with the prophets, right? They're the foundation. Everything is built on top of them. There's no instructions for, for continuing the office of an apostle. It's not there. And what do we see the apostles doing? Them turning over the baton, passing the baton to local church elders. Acts 20 is a beautiful example of this. Local church elders carrying on that same work that the apostles began standing firm on such a strong foundation. Guys like Irenaeus, you know, a hundred years later, 120 years later, we're doing the same thing. We can read about that in the history books. We can read it by from their own words. So these men did commission other men for the work of making disciples. 
But number two, take a look. But those men, those men were called to equip still others for the work of making disciples. What was this work to which they were appointed? Well, one of the things they were appointed to was to equip God's people for the work. In the book of Acts, we find all sorts of people involved in this disciple-making work. There are two guys out of seven guys who are raised up to do what? To administrate food distribution among widows in the church. Does that sound glamorous to you? It's a beautiful ministry. It was such an important ministry, very vital ministry. Does it sound glamorous and sexy to you? Like, oh, wow, they're on the front lines. No, but it was needed. But guess what? Two of those guys, we, we, have, we have lots of ink spent in the book of Acts on a guy named Philip and a guy named Stephen. You see, God was using all sorts of people. God was raising up all sorts of people. People were being equipped to go out with the message of Jesus. We find this in the letters as well. We find instructions and encouragements in these letters of the New Testament that were intended to equip all of God's people for participation. And number three, finally, the work of making disciples was both singular and ongoing. It wasn't either or, it was both and. Singular, it wasn't just singular, it wasn't just ongoing, it was singular and ongoing. Acts tells us that disciples can be made. Chapter 14, verse 21. What does it say? Paul and Barnabas made disciples in that place. Made, past tense, made disciples. 14, 21. They did that simply through proclamation of the gospel and there was acceptance of this good news about Jesus. And yet, Acts in the New Testament letters also point to an ongoing teaching ministry that was carried out by both leaders and non-leaders. And these singular and ongoing aspects of making disciples, they seem to be reflected in our main text. Just look at Matthew 28 if you're still there. Do you see that? The singular and the ongoing. They're represented there by baptizing How many times does that happen? How many times have you been baptized? That's my question to you. I hope not more than once. Maybe you were baptized as a baby, but we're not going to call that baptism. We'll call that christening. How about that? You're christened as a baby, but hopefully you've just been baptized one time. That's just a one time singular transaction, right? That represents that initial reception of the gospel and belief and faith in the gospel. But we also see here there's a teaching ministry. Baptism and teaching. And the teaching ministry is an ongoing ministry as we see it in the book of Acts and the, and the letters of the New Testament. So right here in our main text, we have both singular and ongoing. Okay, so you're thinking, what, how did I... Am I at a, like a class, a Bible class on, on uh, you know, the, the fulfillment of the Great Commission in the book of Acts and the epistles, the letters of the New Testament... No, but we've got to establish this first, right? We need to establish this picture and some of these ideas because we need to ask, why is this all so important? Why is it so important that we know this, understand this? Well, I think verse 20 makes that abundantly clear to us. Look again at chapter 28, Matthew verse 20. It tells us this, genuine disciples will teach Genuine disciples to observe or obey 
all that Jesus has commanded. So I stand up here today trying my darndest to fulfill the Great Commission with you. Every Sunday, trying to fulfill the marching orders of my King with you. Teaching you to obey all that Christ has commanded. I'm not just teaching you what He commanded. I'm not just trying to fill your heads with information, with knowledge. I'm trying to teach you and exhort you as I teach and exhort myself, as others invest in me, to obey Jesus. That means submit to Him as Lord in your life. All that He commanded, not just some, all of it. That means if Jesus commanded them to go and make disciples as we see here, then every disciple needs to learn how to obey that command. Yes? Yes? Am I off on something here? Is this right? Is this a command of Christ to go therefore and make disciples? He says, all that I've commanded you, right? Teach them how to observe all I've commanded you, plural. And this was certainly something he commanded them. And we are called to obey it. But remember, we are learning how to obey this command in light of how the command was obeyed in sacred scripture, in history, preserved faithfully in the, in the, in the scriptures for us. How was it obeyed? Not only by those that Jesus appointed here, the apostles, but also by those they subsequently appointed. And then those who those men equipped for the work. Okay, some of this comes together a little bit more. Brothers and sisters, we are trying to clarify some of this. Clarifying this idea is so important because one of the biggest struggles the church has always faced is how to help every single disciple understand how he or she personally can obey this command to go and make disciples. I'm not telling you something you don't know. You already know this. You already know this is a struggle. You already know that this is a challenge. You already know there are many misconceptions out there about this idea. You already know the tendencies of what Christians do with passages like this, with this passage. You know the feeling sometimes that a passage like this inspires in you, stirs up in you. Whether it be confusion or guilt or shame or whatever it is, we know this is a struggle. Now, if we take any other command of Jesus, like if I were to say to you this morning, lay up your treasure in heaven and not on earth. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. If I were to teach you that, lay up your treasure in heaven, not on earth, I think that you practically would have some sense of how you might put that idea into effect in your life, right? You would be able to kind of get your hooks in there and say, okay, all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know I'm struggling in this way. I do tend to be materialistic in this way. I tend to kind of invest and find security in my bank account or whatever it might be. And you might have some ideas about things that you want to do. You might have some practical steps forward saying, Lord, what will it mean for me to lay up my treasure in heaven? 
Teach me more about that. I want to draw from the investment in eternity. I want to draw from you. I want to value what you will have for me forever rather than the temporary things. Brings to mind the words of Jim Elliot, doesn't it? He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Lay up your treasure in heaven, not on earth. We could talk about that. I think you guys would have some ideas about that. But here's the question. What will you do today or this week or this month to obey this command? Is it as clear to you as lay up your treasure in heaven, turn the other cheek? And we could just go right down the list of things that our Lord taught us, commanded us. What will you do today or this week or this month to obey this command to go and make disciples? My experience is this leaves people usually befuddled. They, they don't quite know what to do with this. Now, as you think about that issue of personal application, because remember, it's not just saying, well, that was to the apostles this was given. We've already dispelled that. We've already pushed on those questions and seen that that's not the whole picture of the, the Bible. And somebody who says that, is misrepresenting God's word if they're saying, well, this doesn't apply to me because that was only for the apostles. No, not true. Not true. So this is for every disciple. We're just trying to understand how to make sense of this that we might actually obey the word, that we might carry out the word. As you think about this issue of personal application, let's go back to Gary Glasses, Inc., okay? Let's go back to Gary Glasses, Inc. I believe Gary wanted every employee in his organization to take up this challenge, to take his challenge, to take their mission to heart. But it meant that no matter... Oh, let me ask this. This is important to clarify. Does that mean Gary's desire for every employee to take the mission to heart, does that mean all of them now have the same role in the company? No, it doesn't mean that. They didn't all have the same role in the company. But, but it meant that no matter the department they were in, no matter their department, no matter their specific position, all of them, it meant that all of them were working toward one goal together. Make sense? And that goal was to get eyeglasses on every person in the country who needed them. So think about this. If Maria works in the manufacturing department at Gary Glasses, Inc., GGI. It's called GGI. How's that sound? GGI. She works in the manufacturing department. And Phil works in sales. Does that mean that Maria will never talk with anyone about eyeglasses? Ever? Well, no. If Marie is at a family picnic and she sees her grandmother, her abuela, squinting at a photo album... Does she need to contact Phil in sales and pass along her grandma's contact info? Well, no, that's silly. She's going to talk with her grandma about these glasses. If she's grateful for her own glasses and she believes wholeheartedly in the product and in the mission of the company, she is going to walk over and be glad to share with her grandma about something that could change her experience. That could make her life so much better we talk about what we care about. 
We talk about what we care about. Maria is glad to tell other people about her job. Maybe she's even hopeful. People say, well, what do you do? Oh, let me tell you what I do. I work for a great company. Here's here's the story. We talk about what we care about. Might Phil in sales, might he factor into the equation at a later time? Sure. All of them are on the same team. In the same way, Ricky, who works in the warehouse, if Ricky sees a fellow employee getting distracted, getting dispirited on the job, he doesn't need to contact the HR department about a hosting a morale-boosting refresher course or breakfast some weekend, right? He doesn't need to do that. He can simply come alongside of his coworker. He can remind him about the founder's visionary vision regarding vision, right? Speaking of eyeglasses, I might need to call GGI. No, they're good. They're good. They are good. Ricky in the warehouse can do that. Is that his job? Well, no, it's HR's job. I'm not going to do that. Well, no, that's silly. Of course not. Ricky believes in the mission of the company. He's taken the founder's challenge to heart. Brothers and sisters, in the same way, each of us comes with different personalities and perspectives and strengths and experiences and spiritual gifts. But sometimes our conception, oftentimes our caricature of what it means to make disciples, our conception only aligns with a few people's personalities and perspectives and strengths and experiences and spiritual gifts. Maybe not with ours, but with with those people. So how can Gary help us this morning see more clearly? Well, the illustration reminds us that all of us are called to take our founder's mission to heart. To take our founder's challenge to heart. To hear this final challenge and joyfully receive his marching orders. If we do that, If you take it to heart, then two things. Here are two things to keep in mind. First of all, however we serve within and beyond this church family, whatever that service looks like, we should do so with joy and gratitude that all of us can support the disciple-making work of God's people. That all of us can support the disciple-making work of God's people. If setting up chairs, if holding babies, if adjusting sound levels, if cleaning the ministry house, opening up your home, donating a stroller, making photocopies, cooking a meal, or anything else will allow someone else, maybe someone from a different department, to give or receive more of Jesus, then we should be thrilled to do that thing. We should be absolutely thrilled to do that thing. Why? Because we should be thrilled by the mission of Jesus. You sit here today because of the mission of Jesus. You should be thrilled that you're sitting here today. You should be thrilled by your Lord. Do you appreciate that there were men and women on mission with Jesus? 
who impacted your life? Or have you lost sight of that? Have you lost sight of that? It's very easy to do so. We should be thrilled by the mission of Jesus who alone provides anyone who comes to Him with a radically new kind of sight. (laughs) Sight not even the best corrective lenses in the world can give a person. (laughs) Jesus opens our eyes. Jesus gives us a new way to see. And what do we have in verse 18 and verse 20 here? We have the promise of His power over all things and His presence with with us at all times as we support this work, as we carry out this work. What beautiful reassurance. But second, second, uh, if as we talked about in September, take a look at this, I'll remind you of this definition If, as we talked about in September, disciple-making is simply spiritually investing in others with an eye toward their wholeness in Christ, if that's a definition that kind of demystifies things for you, I really hope that it does. If it demystifies some things for you, then what we know is, take a look at the next slide, all of us, can serve in the disciple-making work of God's people. Can we support the disciple-making work of God's people? Yes. Can we serve in the disciple-making work of God's people? Yes. Absolutely. Through prayer, all of us are called to speak the truth in love. Take a look at the verses here. A couple of them from Ephesians and Colossians. All of us are called to speak the truth in love to one another. And similarly with outsiders, all of us are called to let our speech always be gracious, grace-filled, seasoned, as it were, with salt. Colossians 4, 6. So we're called to this as believers. In light of God's Word, when you think about God's Word, aren't both of those kinds of speech going to be fueled by the Gospel of Jesus? When it says, speak the truth in love and let your words always be gracious, seasoned with salt... How can it not be talking about the gospel of Jesus being a part of that? How could the gospel of Jesus not be fueling that kind of speech? So let's pray this. Let's pray that hearts full of the gospel will result in mouths full of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray that hearts full of the gospel will result in mouths full of the gospel. It really is that simple. We tend to make this way too complex. And I can even just, even just looking at you guys this morning, I can tell that you, you're struggling with this. You're struggling with this concept. There's a whole like closet full of skeletons or something that I'm kind of opening the door of. And, uh, you're, you're going, and it kind of boils down to, what are you telling me that I have to do, pastor? what are you telling me that we have to do? I'm not telling you anything. I'm telling you what your Lord Jesus has given you the privilege of doing. And it's not, we don't want to make it into something it isn't. If your heart's full of the gospel, your mouth will be full of the gospel. It's not complicated. Uh, Yeah, there's other factors, right, that will battle against that. Try Try to tamp that down inside of you and suppress that in you but we believe in a heart full of the gospel. Because out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. 
Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Yeah, but what are you saying, Pastor? What do I have to do? Who do I have to talk to? Right, you're running through that in your mind right now even. Yeah, wait, what? You won't grow, brother or sister. You won't grow if you don't step out in faith. You won't grow. And I know you want to grow. I know that you want to grow in your faith. We have to stop playing it safe, don't we? If Jesus played it safe, we would not be saved. If the apostles played it safe, we would not be sitting here. We have to stop playing it safe. Now, that might stir up a lot of things inside of you, but those are the very things that God wants to stir up so that you identify them and say, I need help. I need to work through how I'm feeling about this. I'm struggling with this. This is what God is doing. All of us can serve in the disciple-making work of God. Hearts full of the gospel result in mouths full of the gospel. But please be careful. Please be careful. Sometimes we excuse ourselves from serving in this disciple-making work by the ways that we're supporting this disciple-making work. It's good. Pastor, it's all good. Lord, it's all good because I'm supporting the work. I'm setting up the chairs. But it's not an either-or. It's a both-and. It really is. It's a both-and. Why? Because you've taken the mission to heart. And you're not content with just the setting up of the chairs. Oh yeah, setting up the chairs takes on a whole different like magnitude of importance when you see who will be sitting in those chairs and what they will be hearing, what they will be receiving. It's glorious. But if you're not content with that because you're taking the heart, the mission of Jesus, there's more. You, there's more that you want to do. Sometimes we excuse ourselves from serving in this disciple-making work by the ways we're supporting this disciple-making work. But it's both and. It's not either or. So ask yourself this. Take a look on the screen. How can more of us do more of this? How can more of us do more of this? Hopefully a good prayer prompt and, 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 and just thinking. Be thinking about that. How can more of us do more of this? Let's start that conversation as a faith family or continue that conversation as a faith family. I ask you this, brothers and sisters. Have you taken to heart the mission of your king? Have you really taken it to heart? Have you taken to heart the mission of your Redeemer? Having been redeemed yourself by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, does it thrill you to know that you can participate in this life-changing, history-altering, globe-encompassing work of making disciples? Does it thrill you that you can participate? Does it also scare you? Probably, yeah. But it can do both. Right? It can do both in you. It can thrill you and it can scare you. That's where we come back and we say, Jesus said all authority in heaven and on earth is given to Him. And He is with us always, even to the end of the age. He's present with us. As disciples of Jesus, brothers and sisters, as disciples of Jesus, let us observe, let us obey all that Jesus commanded us through His power, and for God's glory. Amen?
Amen? All right, let's pray.